0: Welcome to the Cover Two Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover Two Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. The White House estimates that the economic cost of the opioid epidemic was $504 billion, 2.8% of the GDP, in 2015. Workers with pain medication use disorder cost employers more than three times the health care cost of the average worker. Today, employers, both big and small, are finding there aren't enough people who can pass a drug test to fill all available openings. High turnover, absenteeism, and health care costs are just the beginning of the collateral damage employers throughout America are experiencing due to our nation's worst health crisis on record. Most still treat substance abuse and substance use disorder in the workplace reactively, but there are exceptions. Today, I'm pleased to sit down with Kathleen Harris, the AVP of Wellbeing and Safety at Nationwide Insurance, as well as Robert harden The director of safety so it's a delight to be here
1: thank you we're happy to have this conversation and hope other employers can really be doing the right things yeah
0: so let's begin with the opioid epidemic it's been evolving over 20 years now and you know nationwide right here you're you're located kind of in what we would call the epicenter of the crisis so what have you witnessed and what has been the impact on nationwide
1: Well, I think uh, you can't live in Columbus, Ohio and not have heard of this just ongoing for years now, right? We're leading, um, Ohio's leading in deaths. uh, We're leading in the use. We've actually had a number of speakers come and talk to our associates about how much drug trafficking is happening in this area because of um, the supply then to the East Coast. Um, Columbus is actually considered a high-intensity drug trafficking area. Uh, If you think about it in, you know, it's so mind-boggling the number of people who are dying across the country with this. It's an airplane a day falling out of the sky. Our response would be so different if that's what was happening. And we've got to get folks to understand that's the kind of impact that we're seeing.
0: No doubt about it. Do you have any statistics on the cost of drug and alcohol use in the workplace? Place prior to implementing this innovative program that you've implemented?
1: Well, we're really fortunate. We've had a substance-free um, workplace for more than two decades now, so we the cost would not probably be um, uh, a good indicator from back in the 90s when we first started this, but what I can tell you within our health plan is that we are significantly below our competitors in terms of the amount of money that our health plan spends for people who are in need of rehab and who are in need of um, inpatient care and some of the things that really drive costs. So one of the things I would say to employers who are kind of trying to decide whether or not to put a program like this in place is you're going to pay it now or you're going to pay it later in your health plan costs. And you really can make a difference by impacting folks earlier in the cycle so that they can be successful with outpatient treatment or intensive day treatment or some of the less expensive treatments than needing to be inpatient and hospitalized that really you know drive the costs.
0: Sure that's a, that's a very good point. So Robert, can you walk us through a uh, nationwide insurance's
2: substance-free workplace initiative? Sure. Uh, we actually tackle the issue from two different perspectives. We um, look at monitoring as well as education. So I'll start with monitoring. Uh, every new associate is uh, tested for a drug and alcohol post-offer and pre-employment. Also, we test associates who are in what we call safety-sensitive jobs, so people who drive our fleet cars, people who uh, work in um, the healthcare parts of our organization. We test them randomly to make sure that they remain substance-free. So we have some jobs that we consider safety-sensitive. So those are jobs where uh, impairment could cause loss of life or, or serious injury to the associate or others. Uh, So there are people who drive our fleet cars or work in our dock, uh, our nurses here, uh, things like that. So we test those people randomly um, to make sure that they remain substance-free. And then we also test uh, people who are showing signs of impairment at work. That has to be very difficult because, as we all know,
0: this disease is very good at disguising itself. Right. People are very, very... Clever about keeping that under wraps.
2: You're absolutely right. And that's where we get into the second part of our program, and that's the education. So we spend a lot of time talking with leaders around the company so that they understand what impairment looks like. Uh, They look uh, for people who are in crisis and or uh, are exhibiting behaviors that may indicate that they're they're having a problem. And so then we become involved uh, to help them through the situation and determine whether or not that person may need our help um, through our intervention. And that's why we we really have a a wonderful person administering the program right now Uh, Katie spends a lot of time with the leader uh, prior to talking with the associate who is impaired and she will actually drive that conversation with the associate so that the leader is present but isn't um, having to have that difficult conversation and we really do our best to maintain the person's dignity so we try to you know make it as private and and um, uh, reasonable as possible with the person so that they don't feel attacked. They don't feel uh, that we're looking down upon them. We try to be as compassionate as possible through the so, process. So what puts them on the radar screen? Well, it's very interesting. Sometimes people are coming into work and they're obviously under the influence. Uh, other times it's things like uh, a reduced work in, uh, performance. They may have been a top performer, and now they're they're sliding, or they are late every day, or they're absent every other Monday, or there are other things that come into play that just uh, are signs. And, and so we help leaders recognize those before it becomes a crisis in the office.
0: Next, we discuss the challenges of addressing suspected substance abuse in the workplace.
2: I don't think we could ever train enough, because it is a difficult thing to uh, talk about, and people... Um, there's a stigma associated with substance use disorder, and so people are hesitant sometimes to accuse, and I just do that with air quotes, uh, someone of, of being under the influence. So it, it's an ongoing effort on our part to keep them educated and to destigmatize the uh, whole thing.
0: Kathleen shared the reasoning behind having a dedicated specialist involved in their intervention model.
1: Well, one of the thing, reasons that we have Katie really driving the um, inter, interaction is because this is incredibly rare, right? It doesn't happen um, very often, even in a company of 33,000. It's not something that happens every day. And for most of our leaders, it may be only once in their entire career that they would ever come upon this situation. And so what we learned over the years of doing this is that if we take that burden on and we have that conversation and we drive that interaction, it takes the pressure off of the manager or the leader in trying to do that when they've not ever had this situation come up. And having an office like ours that they can call and say, here's what I'm seeing, do I need to, you know, intervene? It could be that someone has um, diabetes, and we have that medical information, and we can say no. Let's, we'll reach out, and and then it's, you know, because it's not a substance use issue. So oftentimes we have more information about that associate because they've shared it with our nurses and within the associate well-being and safety space. And so not having the leader have to have that or drive that, I think, is. Um, one of the kind of key things that if someone was going to try to implement, they really need to kind of keep it out of the business unit. There's not leaders that are going to get good at this. It's just not that common.
0: So you say that that's very rare in your organization. So I'm going to ask you a difficult question. Put yourself in the shoes of, you know, others in corporate America, because I I think that this, this does happen on a routine basis in many businesses throughout America. So, if you're one of the executives that runs those organizations, how would you implement a program like that when it is a regular thing? How would you do that maybe differently?
1: The first thing that I would do is um, use the calculator from the National Safety Council that is out and available. Um, they worked with Shatterproof and University of Chicago to create a calculator based on where you live in the country. and what industry you're in because substance use is different based on industries and the type of substances people use are different based on the industry. And that will give you a really good sense within your own organization, what kind of use you have. And um, when I say it's rare that people are at work, that's obviously a much smaller number than the people who have substance use issues, correct? It's at the point where their life has fallen apart that they're now using at work is rare and that's why Robert was talking about the education and we spend so much time on education because we know the impact in substance use is much greater than what we'll see walking in the door to work. That's a, that number is the kind of relatively rare number.
0: This Cover 2 podcast is sponsored by Relink.org. Relink.org is an online research tool that allows you to quickly locate addiction recovery and re-entry resources in your area. It includes everything from treatment to housing and employment. Go to Relink.org today to find services or add a resource for free. With Relink.org, help is just three clicks away. Next, Kathleen shares what first steps an employer might take to begin a second chance program in their workplace.
1: Well, I think um, regardless of kind of where you are in the pre-employment or post, you know, the, the pre-employment drug testing, some employers are doing it and some employers are not doing it. Um, regardless of where you sit on that stance, I think if you have nothing in place to start with a second chance policy and create a policy within the workplace, that if someone is impaired at work, that they're not just immediately terminated And that's kind of the end of the story because we know if they're using at work and you terminate them, they've lost literally kind of the last foothold, right? Now they've lost their their position as well and possibly their insurance coverage. We know based on our outcomes that if you intervene and people are willing to get help, uh, that it can make an amazing difference and you can have a great um, successful return to work our person our program if you are positive and you agree to the treatment you're um, we, we don't terminate the person and then we do um, once they return to work they have random testing for um, two years following that incident so there's a way to protect the company as well as protect that person and I'm happy to say that in the last three years we actually just were running our 36 month numbers Um, about 60% of the folks that we worked with who were impaired in the workplace um, were successful with completing their rehab, came back to work, they are successful at their two year mark or they're continually successful in the program. So we've we've literally, if someone commits to going to get help, we have almost 100% success rate with them if they commit to that rehab program. So they become the most loyal employees you could have, right, I mean, you've literally helped them pull themselves back from the brink, right? We're not the ones doing that. We're just putting the structure, the support system in place. So if you have nothing and you're considering, I would say at least start with a second chance policy. Now, I would recommend that you have a really strong EAP and that you need to really understand what that means in terms of having an evaluation and rehab and the subsequent testing. But that's a great small step um, if you're not gonna move into the pre-employment testing.
0: Robert continues now with his overview of the nationwide intervention process.
2: So typically what will happen is the manager will uh, either contact their nurse or they'll contact our associate relations group, and um, then Katie becomes involved. She will talk with the manager, uh, confirm whether or not there's a reasonable suspicion to uh, consider the person impaired. We have some documentation we complete to really uh, standardize the process so that we make sure we're being fair to the associate. We have people who come to us voluntarily and ask to be put into our program. Uh, I'll give you an example. Last year, um, we uh, do a process we call Wellness Welcome. And so we hand out little cards for various uh, health-related issues. And one morning, uh, we handed out a card on one side. It said if you had a broken bone, you would get care right away. And you turn it over, and it says, "Addiction is a disease, not a character flaw." And we had the number for our EAP on it. And on that day, we had three people call us and thank us because they'd gotten into treatment because of that card. So it's a—it's all about um, getting people in the moment. And uh, you know, we tell managers when we're talking to them, it's—it has to be in the here and now because if you think someone is having a problem and you don't do anything about it and you call us the next day and say, "Wow, yesterday, I think she was really drunk at work. Well, it's too late. You have to get the person in the moment so that we can really um, touch them. And uh, so what we do uh, at that point, we will. Have the manager or the leader, take the person into a a private space and we will talk to the person if we have uh, associates all across the country. So a lot of times we do that by phone uh, or we'll do it in person if we're in the in the room. Uh, and we um, talk to them about you know what has been observed and we really are we comfort them, but we also confront them. We have a reason to believe that you're impaired or that you're having a problem with this. And so we're going to send you for testing. And that's what we do. We put them in a cab and send them to a lab who will take a urine sample and a, a breath uh, a breathalyzer right then and there right then and there. And so
0: right then and there you also explain the consequences to them, I would assume. Yes. That- okay, you know, we really want to support you here. Right. And we can take that path or really our hands are tied.
2: Right. Isn't that the kind of conversation you have? Yeah. And what we find is most of the time when someone's confronted that way, they don't argue because they, they know they're in trouble. And it's almost a relief to them because someone's noticed, if that makes sense. But uh, we uh, do have people who um, resist and we you know, we talk to them about those consequences. Don't don't resist this. We're trying to help you. But if you don't let us help you, then you can't work here anymore. Sure.
1: They're often surprised that they're not going to be fired. Yes. Most people, when we're having that conversation, think that they're going to be fired right then. And so Katie being able to explain this is what the process is and that you aren't going to be fired. um, Less than five percent over the last three years have um, not gone for testing. So
0: that's amazing. Less than five percent. That's that's tremendous. Okay. so you put them in the
2: taxi, you send them over for testing. And then the taxi takes them home and we put them on paid leave until we get the results of the test uh once we do that how long is that yeah two to three days usually uh then we uh if the test is unacceptable we will then work with our uh, employee assistance program to get them in touch with the substance use professional they'll have an evaluation to determine what if any kind of treatment is is required Uh, as long as they comply with that then They are put through treatment. Sometimes it's outpatient, sometimes it's inpatient, depending upon the situation. Next, we learn how a dedicated hotline expedites getting help for those in need.
1: One of the things that our EAP did for us back in November of 2016 is they put in a substance um, use hotline so that if you're calling the EAP for counseling, you know, you go through the normal process. But if you're calling for substance use issues, you don't go through that process. You call this other number and it immediately transfers to a trained clinician who can evaluate the person or the situation if a parent's calling for a child, um, and move them into treatment immediately. Because we realized we needed to eliminate any delay when someone has that moment where they're willing to go. And so that that's another, you know if, if folks aren't working with an EAP that has that kind of a resource, I would say definitely need to be looking for it, because that's when you lose people. You get just that one moment, and when somebody's ready, they can't wait three hours for someone to clear paperwork
2: I'll use the most common scenario in in that they will uh, be an outpatient treatment so then they come back to work and we work with the leader to bring them back in to the office we always do a return to duty test to make sure that they're um, acceptable to be back in the workplace and um, we coach the the leader on um, the uh, most respectful way to bring them back into the workplace and and uh, we coach the associate on how to um, return to the workplace and we stay in touch with that person Uh, as kathleen mentioned we do uh, follow-up random testing for two years and we'll you know and it truly is random Uh, there is no um, set cadence to it so that we can make sure that the person is is complying and um, One would think that people would be resistant to that, but we've had people tell us, I am so proud that I can go take this test because I know I'm going to pass. And that makes us happy too, because we know we're helping to keep them uh, healthy. You've had the program in place for really many years now.
0: Can you tell us about its overall impact on turnover and absenteeism as well as productivity, and I I don't know if you would have the numbers on this, but maybe the overall healthcare costs.
1: Well, I can tell you that um, the behavioral health spend, and specifically within the substance use part of our behavioral health spend, we are significantly lower than our um, uh, vendors' book of business, as well as other competitors. So we know, in terms of what people are spending, that we're not having the same costs. And whether that's because two years later, less people are I mean, sorry, two decades later, less people are using, less people have the need, Um, or what I really believe is the early intervention is causing us to not have these massive month after month, um, you know, go away for 28 days, huge bills for providers that oftentimes are out of network. A lot of employers are dealing with that and those kind of um, providers who maybe aren't doing a good job, and then the person's back home, and then they're back in treatment, and then they're back home, and then they're back in treatment. I think we've a, that's the biggest impact that we've had in terms of absenteeism and productivity. It's well established that substance use, uh, anytime there's a problem with that, you're going to see productivity issues and absentee issues. We don't really measure the turnover. I can tell you for the um, you know folks who, as we look at this and we we kind of do this three-year snapshot. And we've had great numbers for a very long time. This last three years has just been amazing. And the biggest difference we made a couple years back was to have the case manager manage the whole process from start to finish. From the minute that we're having the conversation that you're impaired to two years later when you're exiting the program because you passed two years of testing, that's the same case manager all the way through. So that relationship um, has just made a huge difference. And we know that because we have the the um, stories that the associates have told us. And when we did the cards and people voluntarily called and put themselves, like they didn't need to tell us that they had a problem they weren't using at work, but they called us and said, we, I want to go into your program. I want to you to be involved and help me get into treatment when no one even knew they were using.
0: Wow. Who pays for treatment?
1: our It's part of our EAP plan. We have an eight-session model. And so that we drive everything into the eight-session model first. Um, You made the point about the mental health uh, issues. So our model is eight sessions per issue. So oftentimes it's more than eight sessions because there's multiple issues that are happening. Um, If you're actually going into inpatient treatment, it would run through your behavioral health in our health plan.
0: Mm -hmm. Out of curiosity, and just curious, why eight?
1: Um, That's the largest in an EAP model. They tend to run three, five, and eight sessions. That's kind of the standard in the industry. Um, And so we have really kind of the most generous kind of EAP model you can have. Like I said, it's not limited strictly to eight because there's often other complicating issues that are in there. One thing Robert mentioned was the paid leave um, for the, while the testing's happening. Yep. And um, I did want to mention that, you know, he talked about the paperwork and the evaluation we put people through. A hundred percent of the people that we tested in the last three years, and actually it's been much longer than that, mm-hmm. were impaired. So we've, n- we've never made a call and had somebody not... Um, end up having an issue if they go into treatment they move on to our disability plan so they're not ever left during this process without um without a paycheck because that's an appropriate use of disability right i mean we we definitely need to get this person and get them some help so
0: so what does that mean to them
1: um being on your
0: disability plan
1: it would mean that well um, sometimes um employers if they don't have that the person would then go unpaid So if it's the choice between I'm going to go through rehab and not get a paycheck, I'm going to get out of rehab as fast as possible, right? If somebody really needs, um, now the vast majority can come back to work and do it as outpatient, but if somebody really needs inpatient, we don't want them to make the decision between getting better if they're that ill and trying to get a paycheck.
0: Next, we talk about success stories.
2: We have uh, regularly um, received emails and phone calls from associates who thank us for what they've they've been able to accomplish one that comes to mind um, as we were talking a young gentleman um, was uh, suspected to be impaired Um, there were some problems with his test we weren't able to be certain but we think he might have tampered with his test we couldn't make make any uh, 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 clear evidence of that but it was interesting was it random or front-end test it was a reasonable suspicion so oh, okay. two days later um, he called and confessed that yeah I did do do this and I have a real problem can you help me and he is uh, currently in inpatient treatment now for heroin addiction and uh, he you know came to work every day was a good performer but he was addicted to heroin and didn't know how to get help and was petrified that he was going to lose his job which is why he adulterated his test. He'd probably been doing that for quite some time. He was probably really good at it. Yes. Yeah. And um, a very intelligent person. And so it's really heartwarming to me personally to see him getting better. Next we hear about the nationwide substance use response plan.
1: We create a substance use response plan every year and it has four quarterly initiatives and then one monthly message that we send to all associates. And so you know in April our second quarter is prescription take back day. And we Raise the awareness of making sure that you're turning in the prescriptions, right? The research is really clear. About 80% of all heroin users started with prescription medication. Most people don't think there's anything wrong if my doctor wrote it for me. Unfortunately, you know, that medication for your surgery isn't appropriate to use because your shoulder hurts because you were raking leaves this weekend. That's the kind of stuff, you know, that gets people going or their kids find it. Um, so, raising the awareness of what they need to do to get rid of those and to get them out of the house. Um, raising awareness about driving buzzed and what that means, right? People are like, oh, I only had two, it's okay, I can, I can handle three. Um, we do those quarterly initiatives, so even if you can't do anything in the testing realm and you don't have um, the support from leadership to do that or the, or the dollars, There's a lot you can do in terms of just raising the awareness, raising the education level, getting people to think about, you know, one of the things we talk about in our, you know, overall wellness programs, women shouldn't be drinking more than seven drinks a week, men 15, that's because of pathophysiology of getting addicted, right? But (laughs) if you're having three lemon drop martinis, each of those might have had three shots in them. So you just had nine on Friday night, right? When you're pouring that glass of wine, depending on how big your wine glass is, um, it could be two or three servings. So there's a lot employers could do just from a sheer education standpoint. And I, I would challenge that any employer who has a wellness program, you have to have a substance use response plan as part of that. It's, it's one of those things that you know we tend to think about wellness in the fun, what I call happy, happy, joy, joy, the walking programs, the vegetable eating, all those kind of things, which are great. But if you're not addressing the huge barriers like substance use inside of your wellness program, then you're really missing the ball because this is impacting people at just such an enormous rate. Absolutely.
0: Well, once again, I want to thank you both for your time today. And as we close, what final thoughts would you have for our listeners?
2: Um, Well, first of all, I would like to remind people that substance use disorder is an illness. It's not a character flaw. Uh, People with this disease are sick. And sometimes this illness makes them do uh, criminal things or or, uh, behave badly, but that's one of the symptoms of the disease. And the other thing I would uh, encourage employers to do is to remember um, to treat people with dignity because that is a key to uh, succeeding in this space, I think.
1: I think um, I would say do something because doing, you know, I see employers sometimes think about doing something and they think about it and they plan it and they think about it and they think about it. Do something. Start small. Just jump into the space because the if you're just thinking and you're just planning, you're doing nothing.
0: We've been talking today with Kathleen Harris, the AVP of Wellbeing and Safety at Nationwide Insurance in Columbus, Ohio, and Robert harden the Director of Safety. And they've been sharing with us insights into the Nationwide Substance-Free Workplace Program, a program that after 20 years, it continues to show strong and positive results. Just to share a few of the outcomes of this program, in the past 36 months, 95% of the people that have been asked to test have agreed to do so, and only 5% refused and were terminated. 100% of those that were tested had some impairment and were case managed by an associate well-being and safety person. 40% didn't complete their rehabilitation program or were terminated for subsequent substance use problems and issues. 60% are in the program or have completed it, and 0% of associates who finish the two-year follow-up monitoring period have relapsed. I'd say that's an overwhelming success. My name is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit Cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the
1: opioid epidemic, one life at a time.